So this week we were planning to publish an open conversation between the two of us about crimes against Asian people from the March 16th Atlanta shootings to high-profile violent incidents in the Bay Area captured on video that often showed Black aggressors. And we're going to be honest. We weren't quite sure how to put our feelings into words. We had recorded one version of this episode, but we realized we needed more time to process. So we're going to take another week. In the meantime, we would love to hear from you. What do you make of all of this? And how do we end it? You can send us your responses by sending us a voice recording to podcasts at sfchronicle.com. Or you can also leave us a voicemail at 415-777-6156. We really hope to hear from you. and We look forward to including your thoughts on next week's episode. For now, we want to leave you with a longer version of one of our favorite episodes from season one. We hope you enjoy it and hope to see you next week. Hello, people. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Justin Phillips. And I'm Soleil Ho. On this episode, which we are super, super, super excited about, we speak with Ashley Syed, a founding member of SF Community Fridge, and Gabriela Aleman, co-founder of the Mission Meals Coalition. And one of the things with the fridge and its trendiness, too, it's like, I just knew... I just knew that there was gonna be this element of poverty porn that people would want to see in putting in the, the food, in seeing who took the food. Being thanked for getting the food. Yes, oh, and being yeah. thanked. But so like, the thing that I love about this, like I, I love interviews where the people that we're talking to don't really like doing media things, but it's kind of like something that they have to do to spread the word about what they're doing. And uh, I definitely feel like this is this is one where, you know, they, they maybe didn't really want to talk to us. Yeah. No, the, the thing I love about this is that it complicates the narrative that we've heard so many times lately about fridges full of food happening in communities as a net good, as a wonderful, positive story. And not to say that SF Community Fridges is a negative story, but more like... I think Ashley and Gabriela really complicate that narrative and do such a great job of articulating why it's so complicated. Giving them the space to to talk about it on the podcast felt really cool. Felt right. Yeah, yeah, yeah it felt right. So that's why we're uh, we're just gonna disappear into the shadows. <laughs> <laughs> we'll still be there, but we're mostly just you know during the course of the interview just pumping our fists a lot in silence. So. Thank you so much for joining us. We're here to talk about the SF Free Fridges to start and then broadly about food insecurity in the Bay Area. And we're so happy to have you both to talk about the project and also, you know, your individual projects that you're both doing. Um, Ashley, would you mind telling us just briefly like what SF Free Fridges is, the inception, um, what it looks like? Sure. Um, so the SF Free Fridges were inspired by the community fridges in Oakland, in New York, and in other communities for decades, uh, many of which have been organized by black and brown food equity activists. Um, so we are a part of that lineage, a group of SF natives, queer people of color. And in the beginning, they wanted to replicate the same model that you're seeing in other cities. So they wanted to allow anyone to put a fridge outside their property that would be minimally tended to uh, allow donations from anyone and other people to take what they need. What we found when we began organizing this is that the people who felt most comfortable putting a fridge on their property, uh, perhaps they were property owners or landowners, or they lived in neighborhoods that had a positive, quote, unquote, positive relationships with the police. They didn't feel like they would 
be reacted against in any negative way were people who were in neighborhoods that were not facing food insecurity. There's a lot of segregation in San Francisco, huge disparities in wealth. And the people who were writing in uh, those blocks were some of the, uh, the ones that are experiencing the most per capita income, not only in the city, but in the country. So when we began thinking about where we wanted a fridge, it was very important to us to connect with grassroots organizations that have been doing food equity work in the city uh, amongst those communities that have been greatest uh, affected for generations because we quickly realized we don't have the context to know how to wade into food equity during a pandemic. You know, these are emergency life or death times and we wanted to be really intentional with the way we went about this. Um, and so Gabriela and Mission Meals is one of the first groups we reached out to. And Gabriela can speak to this in a moment, but uh, they had a desire to do fridges. And, you know, the fridges are super trendy right now. They're getting a lot of news coverage um, like this, uh, which we're grateful for. Um, there's a lot of people who are interested, specifically a lot of people with a lot of capital. People who, you know, it's become in some, I don't want to say performative, but in some ways it is because it's an easy way to post your social media and show that you are an ethical human being during these wildly unexpected times. And, you know, that was demonstrated by the fact that a lot of people who aren't facing food insecurity wanted to house a fridge. We're guessing that they already aware, were aware that their community wasn't in need of something like this uh, as much as other people were. So basically we thought we could, on our end, help organize all of that capital, all of the people who wanted to donate money. For example, we raised $10,000 with, uh, you know, effectively no promotion in a uh, very short amount of time and I've worked in marketing and PR for a while and I was floored by how quick how well we this performed so you know we decided that we would help organize all of the financial capital and the labor that people wanted to commit a lot of these people had flexible time schedules they were able to volunteer as much as possible they wanted to get the word out and they wanted to donate money so we wrangled all of that and plugged it into essentially Gabriela's network and they directed how the fridge would be operated you know they told us that it's important to have someone at the fridge at all times who can make sure that food is vetted, is safe for the community to eat so that we could develop their trust. And this is a community that's already under siege in many ways. And so um, protecting their safety is crucial to us. You know, Gabriela is the one who told us it's important that you don't allow photos of guests because a lot of people are undocumented and they don't, you know, you deserve a surveillance free food equity experience. Um, and she's the one who gave us a shopping list instead of, you know, instead of allowing anyone to bring anything um, why don't you create a shopping list of things like maseca, rice, beans, milk, you know, things that Gabriel already knew that we would have never known because I am not a food equity activist who is from the Mission District. And so there are huge blind spots that I and the rest of my network have. Um, so yeah, I'll let Gabriela fill in the blanks, but that's basically uh, how we operate. Yeah. So Gabriela, I would love to hear more about how you directed this project and put it in a direction that you felt was appropriate for the neighborhood. Thank you. Um, as Ashley mentioned, um, we were really excited when we heard from SF Free Fridge and just in the beginning and its inception, we got this like really thorough email, which of all the emails we've been getting was just as it hit all the questions that I had in just even reading the subject line. Uh, and as she mentioned, we had been thinking about doing fridges since the very beginning. Um, as she mentioned, I'm also from the Mission District and we started Mission Meals Coalition 
a little before um, the stay in place order was put into place by the mayor here in San Francisco with my mom, my colleague and friend Maria Castro Noboa, my sister Simara Aleman, and with our respective mothers and community tias, aunties as we call them, we fundraised the first $500 within our network to get 100 tamales from a local bakery on 24th so that we could immediately ensure that the day laborers, unhoused folks, and our seniors in particular had food. Because even though right before the stay in place happened, there wasn't urgency about COVID. Uh, we knew just reading the news and seeing its impact, especially in South and Central America, uh, what that would potentially have here in the city. And immediately we also started distributing um, groceries and that the list just started growing. And even though we had this vision of a fridge and my birthday's in December, and I was thinking if we can't do it now in March, I'll fundraise if we're still in COVID for December, because I have a fundraiser every birthday, like for a fridge, like I just want this fridge. Um, but when you're facing 300 plus households that need groceries immediately, and then on the weekends, you have unhoused and daily laborers who can no longer access churches or restaurants for water or just basic food necessities. Fundraising for a fridge and doing that, its own little marketing campaign and everything just wasn't like attainable. So being able to connect with SF Community Fridge was awesome because we were provided the literal capital to get the fridge and they supported in the organizing of where it would be hosted. Uh, currently it lives at Adobe Bookstore, a book co-op on 24th Street in the Latino Cultural District. And uh, it's been a beautiful partnership. And, and as we tell all folks, this is very much in partnership. We definitely appreciate that SF Community Fridge their mission is to amplify existing organizations, but we also, you know, really want to credit as a community fridge and their organizers for the labor that they've put into this and also for doing what in a lot of food equity work I've been seeing doesn't happen, where it's like really providing the mic to folks who really have a deep understanding of the communities they're servicing uh, and in how to do that work. Right. So can you tell us a little bit more, just some background for the listeners who might not be so familiar with the Mission District? Um, we have plenty of listeners who are outside of the Bay Area. But tell us about the neighborhood, the people who live there, and also how food insecurity intersects with their lives. It's predominantly Latinx and historically has been Latinx um, before the current existing Latinx community that is the larger population. It has always been immigrant Base, like a hub for for um, immigrants to the city, to San Francisco, to the Bay Area. And currently with with COVID, it has also been disproportionately impacted, just like other black and brown communities in the city. So tell me how food insecurity is a part of that. In what like individual way is the neighborhood facing it? Yes, I think if we visit kind of the historical just reputation of the mission, having organizers and folks fighting for secure housing, for basic human rights, for access to healthcare, that's all been intertwined to the existing need for food um, access and the pre-existing need for food access. What I tell a lot of folks who have been, because as Ashley mentioned, the fridge has provided Mission Meals Coalition more press than we have ever received, even though it is like literally like a 10% of the work that we do. And we have this history of doing this other work. And as we tell folks, it's like, you know, all the people that were servicing weren't all of a sudden food insecure. It existed before with we were working with populations and it is a community, especially with the rampant gentrification that the mission faces that their lack of secure housing means that they have to put in some in some situations all of their resources into ensuring that they have a roof over their head for the next 30 days so they don't necessarily have food 
for that week, for that day, for that month. Um, when it comes to access to healthcare, we have a lot of, especially seniors who have to prioritize their medication and their doctor visits or that who are uninsured and have to navigate the healthcare system here locally. Um, and, you know, food, food is an integral part of their health, but it isn't a part of how the healthcare system views that equities. You mentioned also like the performative aspect of people that want to get involved right now. And I always wonder, you know, especially when it comes to POC communities, there's like a pride element too when uh, it comes to like obtaining assistance, right? Even if they do need it. So there has to be like a nuanced approach to how you provide that help. And it has to be more as like a hand up and not just like a hand out. I don't know. That sounds like some like Reagan era stuff, Justin. <laughs> what are you talking well, about? Well, th- well, think about it this way. It has to it has to come with a kind of touch, right? It can't be like, you know, condescending in a certain way. No, yeah, I, I think I understand what you're trying to say in the sense of like the approach, right? To provide yeah. people some where their dignity is still intact. For us as Mission Meals Coalition, and as we've told the organizers with SF Community Fridge, a big part of our mission and vision is that we approach our work through the lens of cultural humility and constantly learning about the communities we're, we're working with and direct community engagement. My day job is actually managing a department for community engagement. And with our other co-founders, we have that, that experience and understanding. And I think that within our communities in particular and in all communities of color, women of color have been the pillars of community that when someone like may not necessarily feel the most secure going to a, a community resource on their own, that they'll bring someone that they know who especially is an elder or is a woman. And I think that especially Mission Meals Coalition is all uh, women of color BIPOC run. So I have a bias in sharing that as well, but it has been very essential in how we've been able to provide uh, the most in need folks in our community with services. And when I, you mentioned performative activism too, I think that, you know, my own community is not immune of performative activism either because and i'll kind of like if i can split that up in a few sections within my community speaking at least you know when the black lives matter protest broke up there was a lot about black and brown solidarity and for me and for a lot of the folks that i'm organizing with black and brown solidarity isn't just posting that on social media it's not just saying that you know xyz latinx organization is in solidarity with black folks it also means like food equity and food access and if you look at san francisco right now the folks who disproportionately have a lot of access to food resources is the Latinx community. And I'm the first to say that and to admit that, and we know that. And so for us, like my community has a lot of work to do in that department. And I know that folks are, are working on that Mission Meals Coalition. We've been servicing in direct collaboration with black organizers in the OMI and the Baby and the Tenderloin Treasure Island, because we knew that we cannot say that we're doing food equity work if it didn't include our black and indigenous community members as well. And I think on the twofold, especially when I think of um, people who have been showing what I call class solidarity, who are predominantly white and in the tech industry, you know, I I have a lot of feelings. Um, I, to me, the least that people with privilege can be doing, a lot of the folks in tech who live in the mission, who are providing resources to this fridge, I have a lot of feelings about that, where it's like, yes, thank you, but it also kind of hurts a little to say thank you, because it's like your direct privilege and your direct access to these resources for you to live in this community that you most likely statistically push someone out to live in, to do this job, like, now you're going to give me a few gallons of milk, which like, again, thank you on the principle of providing someone access to milk that they need. And it's just this really bizarre, like paradox, like dichotomy of wealth and privilege of who gets access to what, who gives access to who. Um, 
And so I think to me, the performativeness of all of that kind of is very nuanced and it's very complex and it has a myriad of elements. And then even being a, a, a woman of lead organization, grassroots mutual aid group, you know, within uh, our own community as well, just across all communities, there's a lot of performative uh, solidarity also from the men that we organize with. Historically in organizing, literally across any community, men of color are centered in this work when it's the women of color who are the ones literally like advocating for these resources, literally on the ground, distributing resources on the ground, like collecting information from community in a way that is safe and that is competent. Uh, and it's women of color. And so for us as Mission Meals, it, it has been a very complex journey because, you know, we are in the middle of a global pandemic. The world is on fire. The world is falling apart more than it was before. And now everyone across class, race and everything is experiencing to some element a part of that. Right. And it's very complex. And I think in talking about performative solidarity within different classes within our own community is considered by many the last thing that we should be doing during a pandemic when we are in the need of services. And I, I can see that lens and I understand that. But if anyone knows me personally, I don't think that any situation should mean that we just completely throw things under the rug or that we're just going to put that away for later because the current performative activist things that we're seeing existed before COVID. And everything that exists now during COVID existed before the performance solidarity, the lack of centering women of color who do this work on the ground and historically, that has all existed before. The really weird and twisted class solidarity that's happening has existed before. You see that when giant tech companies donate to 501c3s or grassroots groups for their once a year, you know, this is me giving back to the community that all existed before. And if we don't address that now, during a global pandemic, then when are we going to do that? I love that you brought up like there's a performative aspect in the in communities of color too, where people pose as um, that they're doing a lot. And then if you look into their actions, they aren't doing that much. I think that's why I love seeing groups that are really in the community, like what you guys are doing, that are actually making a difference. Well, I think there's also this tendency, and I think Ashley spoke to this as well, where the fridge thing is has gone viral. It's gotten trendy because it seems like such a positive win-win situation, which which flattens, I think, the impact that the fridges make that can be really uneven depending on how they're distributed, what's in them, and like how they're handled among the communities that they're placed. And so, you know, I think that's a, such a really salient point with this too, right? Because so many people sent me links to the fridge like websites <laughs> saying like, you have to cover this, you have to cover this. And and I get that. I think it's really wonderful. But I think what is the actual story here is a kind of burgeoning organization working hand in hand with people who are already doing that work. You know, you don't hear that story so much. You always hear about the new and the new and yeah. that being the story, you know? Yeah, no, totally. And I think that in line with what you're saying, we knew the moment because we, I, I didn't know Ashley before we started doing this work together, um, especially as folks from the mission and native to San Francisco as well. Like we are always a little um, hesitant and we do our due diligence to have an understanding of the folks we're going to work with. And immediately, because of the trendiness of all of this, there were so many like flags that I was like showing Ashley, like, these are all the things that I really hope that we consider because I see this. I'm reading them too. Like, that was also part of the inspiration of when we first started to really want to do a fridge, but we knew that we couldn't, if we, if we weren't able to do it right, we didn't want to do it um, because we could reallocate those resources. And one of the things with the fridge and its trendiness too, it's like, I just knew. I just knew that there was going to be this element of poverty porn that people would want to see 
in putting in the the food in seeing who took the food being thanked for giving the food yes oh, and being yeah. thanked and so and that's a whole other element where like i mentioned earlier like my mother raised me to be polite and i will thank everyone for what they're doing because again this is powered by every single person the fridge in particular and mission meals um by every single person who donates every single person who engages every single person who's willing to learn and listen to what we're asking as the partner for this particular fridge but there is this interesting element of people also when because I'm, I'm when I'm there, I'm also just like literally like, you know, I can see when people are trying to take a picture or when they're trying to be sneaky about it. And so I'll just go up to them. I'm like, hey, do you want to like, what are you doing? Like, do you want to talk? Like, is there something I can help <laughs> you that you're trying to capture on your camera? And <laughs> it's even no, I'm like, I'm so I'm I'm not the one, you know, like, especially <laughs> like, we are so accustomed to people coming into the mission and like doing this like we are not a tourist attraction and that's the thing with the fridge i did not want the fridge to be a tourist attraction for people who would never outside of this situation come into the neighborhood who wouldn't think to think that black and brown people deserve food because if you if you wouldn't have thought of that before then like i i just have a lot of issues with that but i digress i digress and um <laughs> i think for us like that was a huge thing and even in the beginning right literally like i think it was a few days after the fridge we had uh two members of the press from the east bay a photographer and a journalist and there's a photographer where like you couldn't really see his press pass but like it was a press pass taking photos and like i there is no way that folks would have learned about the fridge without learning about it online and online we're very because that's the only place it's been shared it hadn't been anywhere in the news so if you're online you know that what we asked of the press you would know all of the elements of it like it's very clear it's the, it's one of the easiest things to find and this press person was trying to take pictures of community and so i'm literally having to put my body in front of the camera being like you can't do that and then keeping in mind that you know i represent mission meals I was like, hey, do you have consent to be doing this? Like, what are you doing? He was like, yeah, I have consent from community. And I was like, oh, that's funny because I am community. Like I'm, I'm the mission meal prep. <laughs> and it was just super uncomfortable. And then the journalist comes out and she tells us, you know, like what well, we have this whole back and forth and I'm basically giving a lecture on food equity, poverty porn, two people in the press where I'm just like, Jesus. And I told them, you know, if you, if you want your poverty porn, there are multiple places in the city, even in this district that will welcome cameras. They have done that. We are not that group. We are not that group. And uh, I remember the journalist saying like, you know, without faces, this, like the story isn't, isn't like, I'm not saying it verbatim, but basically like the story isn't worth much without faces. And I was like, you could talk to me. You could take pictures of the fridge. You, you're coming to cover the fridge. The fridge is- But also like worth what to who? He's like, it's not worth that much, but what is it worth and to who? Exactly. Mm. And then in the midst of this interaction, again, super bizarre. My like blood pressure is super high. I'm like, what is happening? I'm just here to drop off rice. Um, <laughs> so I'm, like, I, I'm just like, this is not, this is not it. And the photographer, while I'm speaking to the journalist, because I was like, okay, fine. You want your interview? Let's do it like right now. I don't have the time. Let's just do this. We're, we're engaging. And I see that he goes up to one of the elders who I know personally, monolingual Spanish. And he's like harassing her at this point for a photo. And so I stopped the interview. I just like go up to him and I'm like, she, she doesn't like we, one, we don't do photos. She cannot consent with all the information if she can't even talk to you in the language that you're talking to her about. And if someone just like nods their head, like that's not informed consent. And so I then go on this whole other tangent about informed consent to a member of the press. And 
the two elements of this whole interaction, which I think is very just much like a great example of just our experience with certain folks of the press, is that they're like, well, they pulled what I call a Karen card, where they were like, well, we're on public property. <laughs> Anyone can access this. And I was, at this point, like, blood pressure is just like not even, I was like, what is happening? And the photographer, who was a person of color, was like, again, there was this weaponizing of like identity, even in this interaction, where, you know, the person of color with the access to the camera, engaging with me and this person. And I was like, you know, like, he, he went on this whole thing about like, well, any people have the autonomy to consent. And I was like, you're right. They do have autonomy to consent. We are on public property, but what are you gonna do about it if my body's in front of the camera, if I'm telling you that this is not okay? And the impact of that was that for two days, we had to redo all of our engagement because the community was stressed out that if they came, they would be bombarded by cameras or the oh, press. Wow. So people, you know, that is just, I think that was the first example of that happening. And so because of that, we've been super even more um, present at the fridge to ensure that people feel safe. Because while I was doing the engagement on, because we do phone banking, we do flyering directly to certain community members that we know would need it. We visit the laundromats with, um, diff like we have a very thorough understanding of how to engage our communities, but it took the same work that we did before the fridge even opened because of that interaction. Because the moment that happened, I got a call, uh, my mother got a call from a lady who knew the elder, um, so not even direct thanking her that I stepped in because she didn't feel comfortable and she had no idea what was going on. She just was trying to get stuff for lunch, you know? And then we have other community members asking my mother and other elders in community, like, if I go, what's a good time to go where the cameras aren't going to be there? You know, oh like, God. that's a huge element of that. And, and so for us, like, that's why we say no pictures. If people want to take a picture of the fridge, go for it as long as no one is engaging with it because people deserve to receive food, uh, access to food without feeling embarrassed, without feeling right. surveillance, and without feeling like they're being dehumanized almost by having people gawk at them while they receive food. And it's something that to many feels so small, but to us is so large. The impact has ripple effects. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after the break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Justin, and we're back with Ashley Syed and Gabriela Aleman. There's also a part, like, the more that you guys are kind of, like, out in the public eye, even talking to us, right, uh, doing interviews about this, spreading the word, um, people might share it on social media, and it becomes a little bit of, like, a tourist destination. Even speaking to us is kind of like giving a bit of your narrative to somebody else, and you kind of have to trust that they'll do it, you know, like retell it the right way. How do you kind of come to grips with that and also just make sure it doesn't become, you know, like I said, like one of those tourist spots that people can drive by and not really participate in? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And we've actually been getting that a lot. <laughs> so from our, especially internally as Mission Meals, because we've been really grassroots and because we run very differently and we run through a very like mutual aid lens that is horizontal, like the decision-making even to come to be on this interview and all the different things that we're doing like has community input on that. And I know that realistically, we know that we can't like 
ensure this like secure bubble, but we can mitigate it as much as possible. Um, because we do understand that like the reporter Karen that I was interacting with that people are going to be like, well, this is public property and I can walk around or drive around and X, Y, Z. We know that, but we, we are doing our best to mitigate that as best as possible. We give all of our volunteers, um, that community free fridge, a whole orientation on like what is and isn't okay. And then we, we do work really hard to have mission meal coalition folks that people know in community present because there is a huge impact in having either myself, Maria, or our family members who are known in community and who organize to be present because it has this unspoken almost impact too of like you're safe here this is family and when you know in that situation for example we i i had the comfortability to like really talk to this person and these two folks from the press and do what another member of our community or someone who isn't from our community i mean wouldn't be able to do or wouldn't feel comfortable doing um so there is that we are mitigating as much as possible um you know we're also dealing with the fact that we we are in a very politically active we represent a very politically active community so you know i know that our community has a lot of feelings about the chronicle um how the chronicle is funded all these different things and we know that and i also understand that as a woman of color uh who has been one of the the visible voices in this you know i don't get that many opportunities to talk to press about food equity at, like at all it's been the men of color in my community who have and you know i can go on and on about the different things that we all have done separately but if I'm going to have access to the press, then I'm going to ensure that I can shape the narrative that is as factual and as true as possible to ensure that there is visibility around the work that we're doing, while also letting folks know, Here, here's the work we're doing. This is the narrative that is important for you to know. And if you want to help us, this is how you can do it. Uh, and we're seeing that impact and we understand what it has because, you know, it is it has been disheartening to be really honest, that every single time we we see a lot of different big names reach out to us, it's not because they want to reach out to Mission Meals Coalition. It's because it, who is doing all this food equity work that happens to also be part of the fridge, they just want to talk about the fridge. Even in Spanish media, that has been a big element where I wasn't expecting that, especially from Spanish press, but that's a whole other conversation. And, uh, you know, if, if the fridge is our avenue to having access to share our narrative, then we will use it to, we will leverage it in the way that we believe is, is best fit for, for our community and for our work. Yeah, I'm noticing too, like, you know, there's so much press around the fridge because of its proximity to whiteness. Like there, people care about the fridge because white people care about food equity all of a sudden. Like, you know, most of the volunteers, like are, they're proximity, they're, they're closer to whiteness than they are to black and brownness. And because those types of people, non-Black, non-Latinx people are, you know, doing this, you know, they're caring about this in a new way and they're participating in community engagement in ways that this community traditionally has not in these large cities like, um, like ours. I think that we are getting, we're getting a lot more press and uh, there are power dynamics a part of that too. Like in, in the way that we operate, like as the fridge, we are trying to be as aware of these power dynamics as possible and leveraging them in a way that benefits our partners like Gabriela at Mission Meals and, you know, other neighbor, like other organizations like Mother Browns and IT Bookman and Poder, like we're trying to amplify them every way we can. So even with press, it's hard because like I personally will benefit from the cultural capital of this podcast being publicized. And that is bad for me because I do not care. Like I, 
you know, I came from a tech background. I have enough capital. How much capital do we need? Right? Like I have enough. Um, but at the same time, right now, you know, we do need that capital. It can be siphoned off in a way that, you know, now more people who have money are able to, you know, divert some funding to mission meals. And as we continue to operate, like we want to keep opening up these fridges and, you know, people who have the privilege to allow a fridge on their property, you know, many of them characterize hunger as blight. There's a lot of nimbyism and they don't want to have hungry people on their property. But when we're in the Extra Spicy podcast, when we are in the SF Cron, we are in Hoodline, you know, Cron 4, Univision, NPR, uh, Telemundo, uh, SF Weekly, every, you know, all the press that we've been in, it helps us because, you know, that capital can be used to uh, calm the concerns of landowners and also, you know, give them the added benefit of, you know, they're going to glean some cultural capital for this. So it's like everything is a negotiation within our currently, in, in the current systems we have of institutionalized ways, racism. And if it was our way, we wouldn't be doing any of this, mm-hmm. but we have to negotiate with the current systems of inequity um, and, you know, use our privilege that we have uh, to deal with this, like even Gabrielle's telling, like with the press, like I mentioned earlier, I used to be a member of the press. And so sometimes when the press is there, you know, they treat Gabriela differently. They just do because like there's a different power dynamic. But when we're there, when I'm there, when my white colleagues are there, when my tech colleagues are there, you know, it's different because they, there's just, there's just different power dynamics at play. So like I can say, you know, I used to do these video stories for Discovery Network, you know, instead of taking the photo, you know, what we used to do, what I used to do is I would just get the hands. Let's do the hands together. Come on, we're going to do the hands. You're going to love this. Your boss is going to say, this is amazing. So it's like, we're, yeah, go ahead, Gabriela. No. Yeah. As she was saying, like the, the interaction that I mentioned earlier, I had a, one, a mission meals organizer with me who is by internally, you know, considered a white Latina. The moment she started speaking and sharing literally the exact same dialogue, there was calm. There was just calm. I am the angry Latina. I am the angry, visibly brown woman who is trying to feed people. I am the angry person who is upset that the world doesn't have access to food and water. I am the angry one. And it's not anger, really. It's like passion, I think, in a lot of ways. And we've got a lot to be mad about. We've got a lot to be mad about. So even if we feel angry, you know, we deserve, let us feel the anger. Anyways, keep going. Why do you care? It gives so much of a fuck that we're mad that people can't eat. It's so fucking stupid anyways. And I also think that like, you know, people don't have the context that as a visible brown queer woman from the mission, I've been fighting my whole life. I've been fighting with my family to stay housed. We've been fighting to stay in the city. We've been, you know, my parents are from Nicaragua and El Salvador. They fought their way to this country, literally, to ensure that they could be safe and provide their families a future. And internally, you know, I'm fighting to stay afloat in the communities that I organize in because there's like elements, like I mentioned earlier, of the patriarchy, of machismo, of class, you know, issues and so it's it's a whole element when you're talking to the press and like you know we i i've i've existed in a community in a family in a space in a neighborhood that is consistently just disrespected consistently seen through this lens of poverty and sadness and we have a lot of shit to celebrate you know mission meals coalition is run all by like an intergenerational woman of color bipoc group that has been making sure that people have baby formula that even though we provide food we also provide clothing that there's all like there's a lot to also celebrate and i want community and people who are accessing you know the fridge and and mission meals now to be like you know yes there's this reality uh, that that the that people are now seeing, but we've always seen this. 
Mutual aid is not new. That's another thing. Mutual aid existed before the pandemic. I think the phrase is also now a buzzword for a lot of people who don't really understand what it means. Um, whereas in my communities, we've always done mutual aid, but we didn't call it that. You know, you translate it to ayuda mutua, but like it has always been a neighbor making sure that the other neighbor had eggs. Another neighbor, you know, if the diapers didn't fit for their child anymore, they would save whatever's left to give to their other neighbor. Like that has always existed. That is how we have survived when the government has failed us, when local uh, politicians don't show up for us, even though we campaign for them. You know, I worked on three political campaigns in this city. All of those folks are not native to San Francisco. They are not from here. And where are they to support Mission Meals? Where are they to support Latinx food equity work outside of the, the flashy names and groups that it currently exists? Where are they? And I have been, you know, as, as an example, using myself as an example and other organizers, we have literally put our bodies, our reputation and our labor to advocate for them. But where are they when our communities are hungry and are dehydrated or don't have access to housing? So. I kind of forgot the question, but that's kind of, I think, a whole element of a very, you know, the nuanced, the nuanced degrees of that. So I had this one follow-up question, um, which was, you know, I think when we think about institutionalized food aid, for instance, CalFresh or food stamps um, or other means of, of distributing food to people, there's a lot of means testing, right? There's a lot of questioning of, you know, do these people deserve it? Um, by what parameters do they deserve it? And how do we give it to them? by, you know, however much we decide that they need. Um, and with these sorts of efforts, there's really not that kind of gatekeeping. And I would love to hear about just the sort of the politics of that, right, of just allowing people to take what they want as opposed to what you think they need. That seems to be a really significant difference here. So um, Mission Meals Coalition, a big part as to why we even formed was because especially with food pantries, there's a form you have to fill out. You have to have some form of identification, um, whether it's from here or from your local country to just identify you as the person. And then also I'm using that as an example too, but um, even like proof of where you live. Uh, the issue that we see is that, for example, with food pantries, right, everyone is given a uniform bag currently during COVID. You're given a uniform allocation of XYZ resources. The problem is you can have one person in line that is a household of three, and then you have another person in line with a household of eight, and they're supposed to live off of the same bag for a week until they can come back again. And that's a whole issue and from a like a safety point of view too um the collection of information whether some people deem it as minimal right the people who are giving that information it's their whole life it's their whole sense of security and there's that problem with that as well and then you have other folks who don't have an id who are unhoused they don't have an address but they need food and you know we we also tell people when when we get asked the question, even within our own communities of like, oh, well, you know, X, Y, Z, they're not worried about rent and they have two cars, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we, we hear that a lot, um, even within our communities. And we explain, you know, especially with our thorough engagement work, like, yes, they may have a, a home, but like they're also supporting like two families back home in their country of origin. We don't know people's needs, you know, in that way. People know their own personal needs. And one of the other questions we've also been getting in particular to the fridge is how are you going to ensure that someone doesn't take everything? 
And the undertone of that is how are you sure someone's not going to steal everything? And fundamentally, like, you know, if something is there for community, it's available to everyone at the same price point, which is free and accessible. So it's not really stealing because that, un that underlying tone is super important, I think. Uh, and, and when it comes to it, it's like, well, we don't know if someone needs XYZ. There was someone who, you know, as an example, we had a situation where someone took four bags of groceries and um, we found out in just simple dialogue in the way that we train folks to, to engage, that person didn't have access to like food for at least two weeks and they had four kids at home. You know, like they needed that. We are not here to police people in what they do or don't need. Uh, when we have folks who, and I think also people fundamentally don't understand that under-resourced communities, just because one family or one household might be under-resourced, that doesn't mean that they completely forget their own sense of humanity for their neighbor. We have a lot of folks who are in a lot, a lot of need who are like, well, I'm just going to take this because I can come back XYZ day and I don't know who else is gonna need it. And we've had people return sealed items because they're like, you know what, I thought I needed this, but I don't need it this week, or I don't need it today. And I know that there's other people who do need it. You know, like that has been just, again, the joy in this work. Like that's the elements that I also wish that people could celebrate because institutionally, you don't see that in other spaces and you can't, you can't. Because like it's, there's so much bureaucracy in a lot of other institutions. And I think that even if unintentional, there's this savior complex mentality of like, well, I know that XYZ needs XYZ. You know, I've seen some pantries where it's a diverse group of people who access food. So when they're given kind of a blanket, blanket resources, it's not culturally relevant to them. They're not going to eat it. They're not going to use it. They won't know how. They might be allergic. It might be something against their religion. You know, there's like elements to that that institutionally isn't possible um, in other spaces. You know, I, I'm curious about this. So let's let's do the look ahead thing. I, so I'm just gonna, I'll, I'll start off with my, my own perspective. It's funny because like during this Black Lives Matter movement, which has been going on for a long time, but now getting a renewed attention from non-POCs, uh, I've had people come up to me and be like, so you must be happy right now with the progress. And it's like, fuck, fuck, no, what? No, absolutely not. And so I wonder for you guys, um, there are going to be people who see this and be like, look, they're getting attention. They're having people that want to participate now. You have to be like content with, you know, this kind of renewed energy around addressing food scarcity and like, you know, these at-risk populations. Can you explain to people why? that shit means absolutely nothing right now and how the battle will go on for a long time. Yeah, I mean, again, food food insecurity existed before COVID. It's going to exist now. It's definitely very exasperated globally, which affects also the people who pick the food, who do the labor to harvest the food, who have access to transport. Like it just has a ripple effect, right? And after COVID is over and after everyone is um, done caring, we're still gonna be needing to do this work. And there's layers to it. It's the fact that we live under this capitalist, you know, society where it's making people work to the bone. And I use farm workers as an example constantly where it's like, you know, farm workers are picking all this organic food and all these different things, but they cannot afford to even purchase it and eat it themselves for their families, right? And it's like, it's still going to exist so long as we also have politicians who are complacent in what they do or don't do we're still going to have people struggling for housing and having to pick whether they eat 
and drink water or they have a roof over their head for them and their children or themselves. As long as we have communities that are constantly being policed, we're also gonna have people constantly horrified of leaving their homes or not knowing if they go to the grocery stores, they're gonna come back. Like that's that's conversations that we're always having in, in community and that's stuff that within, especially like the non-Latinx communities that we've been working with have been dialogues we're having. It's like, what are we gonna do? Like we're constantly thinking strategically of like, well, you know, there's only so much we can do now and that we can plan for, but what are we gonna do the moment people stop caring? And I know that my community and the communities we work with are still gonna be doing mutual aid the way we did before, the way the, the way we have been doing before, my sister Maria and my family have been doing before we started publicly fundraising. You know, I'm gonna like, I the initial $20,000 that, that helped for the first uh, few months for Mission Meals was all because of, I put it on my art page. And we did a whole like little campaign and people cared because this artist that they follow and that they like and that the stuff that, you know, is posted is is palpable to them, they cared. But you know what, the moment, like, if I, if I never post about it again, will they still care? You know, like, I think it's 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 just really bizarre. and and you know, sure, you can say that it's great, but also it's it's not <laughs> like it's it's still just the 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 touch of the surface of all of this, because as much as like all these different spaces are getting um, resources, because a lot of us are um, some of us have to struggle a little more than others to get them, but we are able to attain them and the places that are getting resources where you have to walk to, what about our homebound seniors? How are they gonna get resources? You know, like there's always going to be layers to this and like accessibility has to mean like intersectionality and in how we talk about accessibility to resources, how we get resources and how consistent. And you know, this is an open call to action to all these companies and all these gentrifying ass businesses in my neighborhood that like, I need you if you really are telling me you care about my community and my neighborhood to do this consistently and after COVID, because I will keep these receipts. I really will. I have these little receipts and these little names of like, I really want to see you care when we no longer have press. And that's why we also tell larger companies too that want to donate to us. It's like, we, we appreciate your resources. Thank you very much. But we are not in a place where we're going to provide you pictures of people holding your products because this is not an ad. This is not an ad for... XYZ resource, I really try not to name job. You know, this is not an ad for you to show your demographic and the market that you're selling to that you're a decent company, you know? So I hope that answers your question because I'm getting really angry right now. No, it's true. Like you wouldn't believe how many partners we've lost, like people who are able to donate bulk items. And I take a meeting with them, um, <clears throat> just filter out the bullshit before Gabriella has to deal with it. And like, I'll just say from the beginning, like, you know, you cannot put us on your website. You cannot mention us in any context. You cannot put us in any marketing material. You cannot mention us in phone calls with your partners to get a potential deal. You cannot benefit off of this at all. And then they're like, we just never hear back, right? But you know, they had those items. So you were willing to give it, right? So you were okay without it. But now that you can't profit off of it, people can't eat. It's just wild to me. Um, yeah, and then another thing I'll say is like, in the within the first week, the fridge had become the primary food resource for around 100 families a day, each day. And that is unprecedented, I think, for a project like this and is a complete testament to the work that Mission Meals is doing. Like this fridge is uniquely successful because of Gabriela and Mission Meals, because of that existing community engagement. And 
that's just like a soundbite I really wanted to make sure was on the on the podcast just because like it's um people wonder like how is this so quote successful and it's like because we have blind spots we know it Gabriella doesn't like she has a lot more experience with this so (laughs) but (laughs) no I have I definitely have blind spots too but But yeah we all have blind spots yeah yeah you're right Uh, yeah I'll say I have more than you in this aspect and so like if I had done it myself it would have been a lot a lot different oh and then like the last thing I'll say is just that you know when since we were started feeding so many people off of the bat I think a lot of our volunteers many of which who um are not from the neighborhood and because there is such great segregation in San Francisco we're not seeing the day-to-day effects that the pandemic and also like institutional racism we're having on specific community members and having them come here they develop new empathies. I'll say that. I'm seeing people who I've not seen in these spaces previously developing new opinions uh, and new empathies, which I am grateful for. And at the same time, I think that anyone who feels rage in reaction to hearing this is justified because it's like, why did it take so much for you to develop this empathy? Why did it take these people? I mean, like people are dying of hunger in the mission in the United States in fucking San Francisco, where we have some of the greatest incomes in the world. People are dying of hunger and that's fucked up. And the fact that it took you, it took this for these people to suddenly decide that other people deserve to eat and deserve basic human rights makes me angry too. I think that's a great spot to leave off of. Don't want to take up too much of your time. But thank you so much, Gabriella and Ashley, for speaking with us today. We're so grateful to have you and to have you tell your narratives and contribute that to us. So thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was great. I learned so much even just like engaging with you guys. So thank you so much for making the space. Ooh. Soleil, I, I don't even know where to begin. I don't know what to point out. That every, every part of that was just fantastic. Do you need like a hot towel? How like how are you feeling right now? I think I tore something in my shoulder from like fist pumping and clapping during that thing. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe just take a breath. Um, have a few mints. Pour yourself a cup of tea. That was a lot to take in. They're both wonderful. There's so much to think about from that interview. And again, we're so grateful that they spoke to us. So that's all we have for today's episode. Thanks again to Ashley Syed and Gabriela Aleman for being in conversation with us. You can read the transcript of our interview at sfchronicle.com spicy. And remember, send us any questions or voice memos or anything that you have about food, life, or anything else really for our Dear Spicy advice segment at extra spicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks everyone for listening. Extra Spicy is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Erica Carlos is the producer of the show. If you like the Extra Spicy podcast, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me, Soleil Ho, on Twitter at H-O-O-L-E-I-L. And me, Justin Phillips, at just Mr. Phillips. You can support Extra Spicy and great journalism by signing up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.